Let's start out over in Victoria. Good morning, AJ. Good morning, Bobby. I like the way you put that, you know, just roll over in bed and punch those buttons. You know, there are people who have that option at this time of the morning, (laughs) unlike me who got up to meet a a semi at 6 a.m. that didn't show. But anyway, that's a whole other story. I you know, but it's the nicest time of the day. You obviously feel the same way because you're you sound wide awake by uh, this time of the morning. So uh, I know, I know, you're just up getting that uh, to do list done before you have too much supervision. Yes, yes, it it helps. It does help, Bobby. <laughs> it does help. I have a, a, a one situation. Okay. I, I, I was looking for some planting medium to plant flower seeds in, and I visit with this one gentleman who's retired from the nursery business, and he told me to get a bag of top notch. It's put out by SWI out of Schulenburg. Okay. It's got aged pine bark, composted forest products, composted rice hulls, sphagnum peat moss, horticulture perlite, and some ground limestone. But he told me, he said it has no fertilizer in it. So Mm -hmm. you could put a green and grow in there because that's an organic fertilizer. Yeah, Yeah, you could put a little grow and green in there. It's actually BWI out of Schulenburg, and I don't know which brand name. Only thing in there I don't like is the uh, sphagnum peat because it is so antimicrobial. But as long as it's, uh, you know, fairly far down the list of ingredients... Um, I, I would, you know, I would be examining that medium. Uh, there are some companies that make, they call them seed starting media, but then they put these big chunks of pine bark and I want what I'm starting my little seeds in to be very, very fine textured. I don't want any big chunks of anything in there. And I'll tell you quite honestly, uh, if I got something like that, I probably would make myself a little screen, maybe with, uh, say, eighth-inch uh, hardware cloth or something like that, and I would run that that mix through that screen, and then what I came out, that's what I would use for starting my seeds. I'd be willing to bet you if you do that, you're going to find about a third of it is big old chunks of material that might be fine in a general potting soil, but a seed starting medium should be you know, very, very fine. I remember growing up all those years ago with my granddad in uh, his florist and nursery business. And, you know, we had a big screen. We'd put the wheelbarrow underneath it, and then we'd take our just our good soils, and we'd always run it through that screen so we had a nice, fine medium for seed starting. And uh, I still do that with a lot of things. When I'm creating beds, I created some beds around my new greenhouse and some other places, I will still take whatever soil I'm going to use and uh, I run it through a little coarser screen. I run it through half-inch hardware cloth, and I put a backing on that of, uh, you know, the uh, hog wire uh, mm-hmm. just so that it holds up better. But mm-hmm. I, I, I tell you, I don't know of anything you're going to find in a bag that would be what I would want to start my seeds in. Okay. So, like I say, if it, it's a very... You know, for a fellow that knows how to use his hands and make things, uh, you can make yourself a little screen that would serve the purpose ideally. And I'll bet you if you got a bag of uh, just really any good soil, ran it through that to take out the chunks of bigger material, you're going to end up with a great seed starting medium. All right. Okay. And uh, if I just opt to go with this, uh, what kind of... 
how much uh, fertilizer could I add if I if I measure the material off, say in gallons? How much would uh, growing green would you add to a gallon of material? Well, of course, there's a liquid gallon, there's a dry gallon. <laughs> a gallon doesn't no, mean as much as yeah, it used yeah, to, yeah. but um, I I would probably let's say to to a one gallon container of uh nursery if you go by the one gallon nursery can i'd add mm-hmm. a couple of tablespoons of growing green okay all right all right that's the main what i was trying to find out so yeah i'm going to let you get with those other people who are waiting to get at you bobby <laughs> and so i do thank you well you get your list done before the supervisor uh gets up to, to oversee <laughs> your work and uh i'll look forward to our next visit aj appreciate right, the call bobby. this morning thank you sir Bye. Goodbye. Oscar's next, and it'll be Linda and Darla. Good morning, Oscar. Good morning, sir. How are you doing today? I'm great. It's a beautiful morning out there. Just a little chilly. Yes, sir. That it is. One question. I planted a tree this weekend, and I know you've covered it before, but I just want to refresh my mind. Uh, what's the best way to secure that tree? You don't hold, uh, tie it down. Well, um, if you feel like it is necessary to secure it, the best way to do it would be to lay, um, I would use probably a piece of uh, three-quarter inch pipe, but you could also use wood. Lay one either pipe or board on either side of that trunk on top of the root ball and then secure that to the ground. If I were doing it, I'd take a piece of rebar, bend it in a U-shape, and uh, that's, you know, if you've got a vice, that's easy to do. I remember the first time I ever did it, I just stuck it through a hole in the bumper of uh, you know, a van, that, you know, where I later put a, a ball for a trailer hitch and uh, just bent that piece of, uh, uh, and I use the thin rebar, the 3 8 inch rebar, bend that into a U and push that down in to secure it. But but what we're finding is it's much better not to stake the trunk, but you can anchor that root ball in place, accomplish the same thing, and still give that tree the the uh, ability to move back and forth in the breeze, which is a very important thing to establishing a strong, strong trunk over the long run. Right. So, so th- those pieces of wood would be uh, two-by-fours? Two-by-twos, two-by-fours. They would be scrap wood. <laughs> I'm yeah. not going to go out and buy good wood to do that. But anything that's strong enough, you know, just to hold that root ball in place um, for, say, the first six months while it gets some good roots established. But, uh, yeah, and beyond that, you know, if I were using the wood, I'd be probably driving a survey stake six to eight inches down into the ground on either end of it. And then I don't use nearly as many nails as I used to. Uh, there's so many good things like those uh, GRK screws and all. That's what I would anchor it in place with. And uh, you're you're asking a great question, and I applaud you for you know, asking me about securing the root ball rather than staking the trunk. You obviously have a good idea what you're doing, Oscar. Yeah, well, yes, sir. So, so just a uh, uh, dumb remark. So, so two big paste stones on each side would not work. Oh, that'd be fine. You know, if it's uh, if they're heavy. Um, yeah, in they my world, heavy. I, you know, 
<laughs> Living in the hill country, I have access to large quantities of large flat rocks. Um, so, and I've seen lightweight paved stones, and I've seen heavy ones. But uh, if you're in a in an area where you don't typically have real strong winds, yeah, that probably would work. Uh, where I live, I would use a uh, uh, I would use enough of them to say put a hundred hundred and fifty pounds of weight on each end. And one little lightweight stone's not going to do it, but something that really anchors that to the ground if it would hurt to kick it then maybe it's heavy enough for you to hold it down there but one little stone probably wouldn't do it so so that those stones will not kill the 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 root ball no no and and remember you know your two by four or whatever's going to probably be three feet long it's going to extend out well over the hole that you dug for the root ball so you know your stones that you put out there the plant the tree doesn't have any roots out that far yet and it'll take months for it to do so so now that doesn't concern me at all okay then that'll work that's what i I, i'm hearing stone oak so (laughs) <laughs> and as I always tell people, that place got its name very appropriately. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, dig your hole before you buy your tree. And a lot of folks end up doing a raised bed because, uh, oh. you know, they simply can't get a. And, and you don't want to chip out. Some people say, I'll oh, just get a jackhammer and chip a hole oh. in the ro- rock. No, oh. that hole needs to drain well. And um, it's you're just out in an area where it's a little bit tougher to dig a hole. I'm I, in that regard. I'm very envious of our friends down in Pleasanton and Jordanton and all the way yes, down sir. that way. Because yes, and and east is yeah yes, yeah whole different world. Okay, sir. I thank you for your information. You have a good day and a happy St. Patrick. And the same to you, Oscar. Very much so. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Certainly. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> All right, back to gardening. One open line, that uh, line number two is going to be Linda and Darla and Kathy, and Linda is first. Good morning. Uh, did you say Kathy or Linda? Linda. Okay. Um, one technical question, sorry. Um, lava sand. You were talking about paramagnetic. It's paramagnetic, and i got three questions on it. And why isn't it a good supplier of iron? Because isn't lava iron nickel? And three, oh, how can it, how can it hold water better than regular sand? It got little tiny holes in it? Or? Well, it has some porosity to it, and it has a uh, a chemical structure and a physical structure that just, uh, um, it actually attracts moisture. Uh, you can put a pile of dry lava sand out on the surface of something, and if there's much humidity at all in the air, you go back and check that lava sand a little bit later, and it will be quite moist. Uh, it, I know why. Uh, you're going to have to ask a chemist uh, who can give you a better ex- explanation than I can. But well, uh, when I was out at Del Rio, there were these black rocks. I, they're black. I don't know if they're lava. Maybe black lava. They're they're much but, much older rock. They are basaltic rock, which is yeah. uh, it's the the proper geologic term is it's igneous in nature, which means it was mo- once molten rock as opposed to limestone which is a sedimentary rock but in general lava lava is a much younger uh rock so to speak than uh basaltic rocks are and the younger the fresher the newer the lava the more recently it erupted the higher the paramagnetic uh, reading will be on that and paramagnetism is a very low 
uh, level energy source. That may have something to do with its water attracting ability. But again, I'm a biologist. I'm not a chemist and I, I really can't tell you the exact mechanism on that one. Maybe I'll learn it one of these days. In fact, I'll probably have a good uh, physicist out there listening somewhere that will email me later and say, here's what you need to know. But uh, all I can tell you is just from experience, and that is that it does do a better job of, because of its structure, it does a better job of holding moisture in the soil than a clay soil, which has, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, composition is so tight it doesn't let water in to begin with or a sandy soil which is so open that the water passes right through it and doesn't stay lava sand just seems to be a happy medium which uh, enables the uh, it's paramagnetism and what we call uh, cation exchange capacity make it able to hold on to nutrients better. But anything that would readily come out of lava, be it iron or anything else, even young lava is probably 10 to 15 million years old. Anything that would leach out of that easily came out a long time ago. I hear you. Okay. <clears throat> um, when I was out in Del Rio, uh, Amistad Lake. Right. I, when uh, infrequent rain, very infrequent, way late in the day, long after it rained, I was out there walking around on these rocks, and they, they looked basaltic, and uh-huh. the water was there. It stayed. It, they, there were little holes in the rock, uh-huh. little, and the water had creeped out of all of those holes to like a foot. <laughs> I I spent parts of three summers in a wildlife management area in West Texas, uh, the Black Gap. It, we, red, wildlife management area is where I was, and they call it that because of all the basaltic rock, and I've seen the same thing. doesn't rain frequently, but it sure is interesting when it does. Yeah. i never seen anything like that. Um, okay, and, and that tree that you're holding down, uh, that's, to keep the trunk able to move, right? That's to allow the trunk to move, but to hold the root ball secure so that it can uh, root into the surrounding soils without having those roots get broken off every time the the wind tries to rock it back and forth. And you put that rebar at the end of two boards, one on each side of the ball? Yeah, or I use, I I prefer to use three-quarter inch iron pipe. Um, It just is, you know, less unsightly, and if you do it right, uh, it's easier to, uh, I'd, I'd probably be using my line trimmer rather than my mower over that area, but um, I, I just happen to prefer pipe. I can work with pipe. Some people uh, are more comfortable with lumber, and that works fine as well, as long as you have a good, strong board. You could do the same okay. thing with treks. You could do the same thing with, uh, you know, a piece of angle iron or just about anything else. Anything that is rigid enough to hold the root ball in place, you're just anchoring the ends of it to keep that root ball from rocking back and forth. Thank you. Oh, just one more. Um, that paramagnetism, that seemed to have extra properties beyond holding cations. Uh, uh, um, is there anything else about paramagnet? Paramagnet paramagnetism it's um and it's the the cation exchange capacity doesn't really have anything to do with that uh but it is a low level energy source and 
You know, it seems to have kind of a synergistic effect on lots of processes that go on within the plant roots. I don't know how well understood it is, but uh, I know that one thing that Malcolm Beck, uh, when he was alive and what he discovered in his garden, uh, that it enabled plants to take up more sugars, which made them more cold hardy. And uh, he was, you know, he talked about having planted tomato plants and used the lava sand around them, planted other tomato plants just into the native soil, would have a really chilly night, and his that were just in the native soil froze. His that had the lava sand blended in the soil did not. And probably the mechanism there is that something in the energy field that it creates allows the plants to absorb and create and store more materials including sugars which uh, which are created in the plant but which serve as an antifreeze and it's just one of many different things that 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 uh, as i say i guess synergism would be the best way to describe it it makes a lot of metabolic processes within the plant simply work better to have that energy field out there and once again find yourself a good physics teacher and he or she can probably explain it much better than I can. I think you did a wonderful job. That's probably why they say wear magnetic bracelets and all that stuff. It's not just a bunch of hop and hooey. There may be something to it. Oh, yeah, and I I look at things. I had the pleasure... Oh, uh, probably been three or four years now, but it wasn't all that long after Mount St. Helens erupted. And the people out there had forecast that it would take hundreds of years for things to regrow in that area. And there was already tremendous vegetation there. And it's just like Hawaii. The Hawaiian Islands, um, if you've been there and you probably have, are very very lush in the vegetation uh at least in the moisture islands or the moisture side of uh, some of the islands but and the reason is there those plants are growing in basically pure lava and we have found that in the nursery industry a lot of the plants that we buy come to us planted in potting soils that are high in lava and those plants are stronger and grow faster than the ones that are basically planted in a humus material so it's uh not not just a bunch of hocus pocus. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence of how much better things grow uh, with some lava sand um, or lava chunks. In the case of, I know a lot of orchid growers in Hawaii, and a lot of them grow in uh, just chunks of lava about the size of rock salt. So uh, it's good stuff. Wow. Yeah, I'm going to go out and buy some. Thank you so much for excellent explanation. And just one more thing you might find interesting, and I don't—I think it was uh, Malcolm and Howard Garrett working together. They looked at lava that was being taken um, from the same ancient volcano, and the lava that they took on the outside of the cone was much higher. I'm sorry, it was much lower in paramagnetism than the lava that came from the inside, which indicated, and lots, you know, volcanoes over the millennia uh, tend to erupt over and over and over. And those eruptions that occurred in the distant past did not have nearly as much paramagnetism as the more recent, meaning only a few million years ago instead of a lot of million years ago. Uh, they found that if the lava was taken from the outside area of that volcano, it was much higher in paramagnetism and therefore was much better for use in plants. So uh, not all lava is created equal, I guess you might say. It might have been created equal when it flowed out from the center of the earth, but uh, over time it does lose 
lose some of that paramagnetic quality. So all lava is good. Some lot of lava is better than others. Okay, but I would think that more of it would be gotten from the outside. I'd say it's a whole lot easier to yep. get it from the outside. Absolutely. Okay. I listen to you every chance I get because I always learn something. Appreciate it, Linda. Have a great uh, St. Patty's Day, and thanks for the call. Goodbye. All right, let's talk to Darla. Good morning, Darla. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Say, I live down here in the brush country where everybody's trying to get rid of uh, cactus. And I'm, yep. I've, I've discovered one in my pasture that I would like to try to propagate without having to dig it up. Sure. It, uh, it looks like uh, like the pataya. It has fingers or mm-hmm. arms or whatever you call it. Yeah. But it, uh, I found it a couple of years ago, and it has the most beautiful bright pink bloom and it, it, it's mm-hmm. not a potato it's not purple yeah and i was wondering if instead of having to dig up the whole plant um and take a chance of losing the whole thing if i could cut off one of the arms and let it uh harden off and then plant it probably not unfortunately probably not. that that group of cactus um does not propagate nearly as well from cuttings. You get the opuntias, the prickly pears, and every pad, in fact, every portion of a pad grows a new plant very easily. Uh, Any... Yeah, any of your, you're probably looking at one, the genus is probably Dazzlerian, maybe one of the rainbow cacti, uh, but those are almost exclusively propagated from seed. And mm. so, you know, those seed pods are very attractive to lots of little furry creatures. So what I would suggest that you do if you, you know, if you know where these are in the pastures, um, maybe put some sort of little cover or cage uh, that would be mouse-proof over the top of that after they bloom, go back mm-hmm. and harvest the seed pod. And, you know, one seed pod's probably going to have 50 to 100 seed in it, and they grow very, very easily from seed. But the ones that I've tried to propagate, you know, by taking, as you say, an arm or taking a portion of that uh, off, uh, a large percentage of them just rot. A few of them yeah. will uh, take will form roots if you let them dry and callus, but it's just not very reliable like it is in some other cacti like the apuntias. But if you can indeed find a way to let one of those, because they make good seed pods, and of course, <laughs> very few people know what a pataya is, but I happen okay. to, my days in West Texas, if you found a pataya, which is the fruit on this particular cactus, you ate it first and then tell everybody else what you had found. Because if right. you point it out to any natives, you know, and the, the spines just brush off of them when they're ripe, and boy, that strawberry flavor, it's just one of the tastiest things in the desert, but uh, I'm glad you're familiar with patayas, but if you oh, want to, yeah. yeah, that kind of cactus, find find the ripe seed pod, collect some seed out of it, and uh, they'll germinate and grow e- as easily as tomato seed. Okay, I'll have to try that. There's only one plant like that that I've found. Mm-hmm. There's not several, you know, and, and that's because that the rodents eat so much of the seed. Ah, uh, okay. Well, I'll sure try it. I'll try to cover it and protect it and then get the seeds from it and try it. That would be uh, the thing to do. Thing I, one yeah. other thing I might ask you about. Last year, I tried to propagate some wild passion vine. Mm-hmm. And uh, I potted it up just in some regular potting soil in some little four-inch pots. And it stayed green and alive for about two weeks. And then it just rotted off. 
Mm-hmm. What could I do different? Should I use perlite? Yes, I would use perlite because perlite is basically a sterile medium. It doesn't right. have the decomposing bacteria and fungi that soils do. And so I would root it first and then um, did, did you actually take portions of the stem or did you take little sprouts who are coming up around the plant out of the ground? Actually, I just took portions of the stem and yep. I uh, soaked it in liquid seaweed yeah. first. You you need to just then, yeah r- put it in perlite. Give it six eight right. weeks to form roots. Then you can pot it up, and you'll have probably close to a hundred percent success with it. Okay. Well, I'm always trying to pot up something. I had some <laughs> pink, I had some pink bluebonnet seeds that I potted up, and uh, of all things, we got a snow. <laughs> I had them on my back porch, and they were up, and just the little green was coming up. And we had a snow, and the whole top of the pot was covered in snow. We only get it like every 10 years. Sure. But I lost those so because it came so unexpectedly. I didn't think to bring them in. Welcome anyway, to Texas. <laughs> There's yeah, always something really, unusual sure. going on. Well, you keep up your your uh, your fun with experimenting with different things. It's just uh, what makes the world go round. I'm glad you enjoyed it as much as I do. Oh, and I love your program. I I listen to it every Saturday and Sunday. Darla, I appreciate it. (laughs) And you have a great weekend. Right now to the phone lines, and Kathy is up first. Good morning. Good morning. I just have a quick question about pruning my knockout rose. Okay. We bought a piece of property out in Seguin, and I trimmed the bush back. It's Well, it's fairly large. It's about seven feet tall. So Mm -hmm. um, I trimmed it back right around Valentine's Day, about a third. But I'm really looking at it and wanting to prune it back some more. Is it too late to do that, and how far can I go with it? Well, it's it's never too late to prune, but every time you prune, you're sacrificing flowers. Knockout is uh, a, a strain of roses, so to speak, that blooms almost constantly, and, uh, I mean, in good conditions where you're giving it plenty of water. In my experience, my only real objection to knockouts is they take about twice as much or three times as frequent watering as any other rose in my landscape. In fact, I've eliminated most of them because I just don't water that much. But um, it's just every time you cut them back, it's going to take them probably six weeks to grow out to the point that they will be in flower again. So go ahead and prune. Uh, Roses can be pruned very heavily without really causing any problems as so long as they are healthy. Now, considering that you just acquired this property relatively recently, um, if you haven't fertilized if you haven't mulched if you would not say that the plants were in top form then i get them a little healthier before you prune them but the fact that they need pruning again tells me they're fairly vigorous so you're probably in pretty good shape to to prune but just recognize you will be giving up uh several weeks of flowering every time you cut them back Okay, great. And then what would you recommend for the fertilizer? Really, any product that is just a good basic organic fertilizer is going to work well. Um, If you want to get one specifically for roses, I'm very fond of Rose Glow by Maestro Grow. I know Espoma makes a rose tone fertilizer. Uh, but if you, you know, if you don't want to buy a special product, uh, just buy, you know, Nature's Creations general purpose food or Medina's general purpose food and uh, add a little bit of Epsom salts. That's one thing the magno- magnesium and the roses really seem to love. Add a little bit of Epsom salts to them and, uh, 
uh, you may not be giving your your roses prime rib, but you'll be giving them a, a good steak <laughs> when it comes awesome. to feeding them. <laughs> great. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Great, great uh, call, Kathy. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Okay, Jill is up next. Good morning, Jill. Good morning. Good morning. I had a um, yard that is primarily crushed granite with some beds that have pecan shells. Okay. And this um, house has been neglected, so the the weeds are probably knee high. Mm-hmm. And I <clears throat> sprayed some of the you know the organic the or, orange oil and vinegar. Right. But <clears throat> I guess because it's so much and so thick that I'm just not. I mean, it's like covered with mm-hmm. weeds mm-hmm. i don't know how to handle that well here's the good news the good news is that what you are seeing is weeds out there right now probably close to a hundred percent of them are your cool season grasses like rescue grass you're seeing dandelions you're seeing henbit um, all of those things are going to disappear and die totally on their own as the weather starts to get hot what I would be doing at this point is trying to keep them mowed off as close to ground level as you can. If the yard's relatively flat, you can mow over decomposed granite. I do it fairly often. Um, if you are afraid that you just be, you know, bumping your lawnmower on the ground, then do it with a good, powerful line trimmer. But keep those things mowed off. Um, try to gather the seed. That's the best thing we can do right now is trying to keep all these things from coming back next year. And um, rather than take on knee-high weeds, trying to spray with anything, and the chemical weed killers wouldn't do any any better than the vinegar and orange oil, so don't go that route. But physically try to reduce the size. Anything that's already going to seed, Put it in the compost pile, pile it somewhere else where those seeds are not going to get back to the ground. But as you so aptly put it, it's been neglected. It didn't get this way overnight, and you really can't expect to restore it overnight. So uh, I, I'm not about to tell you to get out and pull it. That's going to be backbreaking labor that is totally unnecessary because all this stuff is going to die when it gets hot, whether you do anything or not. Your big job should be trying to uh, keep it from going to seed so you don't have to do this to nearly this extent next spring. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for that good advice. Let me tell you one other thing, too, about line trimmers. Um, I, I try to avoid saying weed eater because that's just one brand. I happen to love my steel line trimmer. But there are different lines, different uh, cutting lines that you can put um, on a given brand of line trimmer. And you will find what they call a diamond line most of the line you see on uh, line trimmers is round and if it's moving fast enough it's very effective but be the diamond line is literally shaped like a diamond and as you can imagine has much sharper edges and it will make a much cleaner cut you will find that it is much less work to cut down overgrown weeds and things like that so um take a close look if you choose to use the line trimmer which is what i would be using uh take a look at whether or not you can use a diamond line in there and if so you're going to find that it's going to be a lot easier uh to cut it down a lot closer to the ground you're not going to bog down <laughs> the way you sometimes do when when you're fighting such a big big object the um <laughs> i have a friend in bernie too that might loan you a couple of goats you could stake out there that would also do the job very well but unfortunately they don't stop with the weeds they tend to move over to other things 
<laughs> well, thank you very much. I'll look for diamond line. Just any diamond-shaped line. Jill, it's a great question. I appreciate the call this morning. All right, let's get back to gardening. Uh, first three callers, James, Izzy, and Rich. And James is first. Good morning, James. Top of the morning to you, Bobby. And the rest of the day to you as well, sir. How are you today, sir? Uh, it's just a nice morning out there. And, you know, as one of our managers who was originally from Wisconsin said, there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad wardrobe. So I put on an extra layer this morning, but it's not bad out there. It's not bad at all. Hey, I called with, go ahead. I called with some information for you, Bob. Good. Um, Stuart Frankie's doing a real good job with his, liquid fish blend fertilizer i ran it through the injector yesterday and it worked just fine very good you didn't have to strain it or anything well that's why i'm saying he's doing a real good job of of uh straining it mm-hmm. and he's got enough uh i guess you'd call garret juice in there uh-huh. to dilute it to the consistency where <clears throat> excuse me it will inject and uh i figure about you know, 30, 40 gallons of water and about a quart of product. So that's about an ounce a gallon, give or take a little bit. Yeah, and that's a great great ratio to be feeding with. Do you use it every watering? How often are you going to be using it? Uh, once a week for sure. Yeah. Uh, now that I've found out, it, it works in the injectors. But the, the deal is you can go down the row with the, with the regular nozzle and water everything in and then put the – at the end of the row, put the foggit nozzle on. Right. Nobody knows what those are. <laughs> F-O-G-G. Uh, and then come back and uh, and foliage feed everything. It mm-hmm. works really well, man. And about an hour later, I went back there to check it out, and uh, those plants were really standing tall, and <laughs> they looked like they turned a little greener. It's it's funny. As, as you and I have talked before, I'm a bigger fan of root feeding than I am foliar feeding, but I think a combination of the two you know, does the does the job better than anything else. And that's exactly what you're doing. You're giving them a long-lasting meal when you're putting it on the ground, and then you're giving them something they can take up directly through the leaves. And uh, uh, for most plants, I, I just think that's an ideal thing to be doing. Now, I suspect, um, and, you know, in my lifetime, I've, I used to grow a lot of white orchid flowers, and we didn't do much foliar feeding because if you had anything in bloom, it left brown spots all over the blooms but uh growing those tomatoes and things like that that's not a concern and they, any brown that gets on the fruit washes right off well malcolm used to foliage feed he started really started it with us and uh he thought it was the fish emulsion that kept uh, the you know insects spider mites you name it off of the plants but he come to find out it was the seaweed in right. the mix right that's where that uh that fish emulsion and uh, the garret juice combination really, really shines. Well, I'm proud of the fact that I can think, I, I think I can say that's one thing I, uh, or actually my partner and I, Roberta and I taught uh, Malcolm was that uh, the spider mite uh, and the other mites and many insects uh, don't uh, like what the seaweed does because the seaweed toughens the leaf to where they can't damage it and uh, that's <laughs> I learned a lot from Malcolm but I'm very proud to say that every now and then I was able to teach him something and uh, sure missed the guy he was he was certainly an inspiration to us all yes sir he sure was uh, we were uh, we were the better for knowing him you 
you can count on that. And uh, I always remember uh, one of my mantras in life is what he said, the only difference in work and play is the amount of pleasure you derive from it. And by that definition, I don't think you and I work too much. (laughs) You spend a lot of hours at it, though. Anything else this morning, James? We're just having fun doing what we like. That's what I wanted to share with you guys that – well, that liquid uh, fish product will will inject just fine, and uh, try it. You'll like it. I guarantee I'll be doing it. Thanks, James. We'll talk again soon. Let me get Izzy in here before the break. Good morning, Izzy. Hey, good morning, Bob. Good morning. Yes, I, I needed I needed your help on um, transplanting a hill country peach tree. Okay. Yeah, I um, this uh, somebody uh, fortunately helped me. Uh, uproot a peach tree uh-huh. in the hill country. Um, the thing is that the, the sand was rural. The, the, how how the big is how big is the tree? Is he? Uh, the, the diameter is about uh, maybe three inches to four inches. Okay, I would have not advised moving a tree that big because your chances of being successful aren't real great and uh being short live trees but uh so the tree is already out of the ground have you kept that root system uh totally moist have you covered it with something that holds moisture around it uh well unfortunately the soil was so sandy uh-huh uh, a lot of it fell off so when i went and transplanted or, or dug it in the ground Mm-hmm. I had to recompact the soil around it. I've kept it moist, of course. Okay. Um, I would advise you to uh, every day, in fact, if you could do it three or four times a day, go out and spray down the limbs, spray down the trunk of that tree, because obviously those roots suffered a lot of damage. But that tree will absorb a great deal of moisture directly through the bark, and that's probably what is going to help it to survive. There's not a – not any way i think that you could do that too often i mean we used to do that when i worked with Alton Grimm up in the hill country we'd try to spray down our bare root trees which were always in some sort of container we tried to spray them down eight ten times a day and it really cut down on the dehydration and increased the chances uh of having them survive and come out uh would you recommend uh using a root, a root stimulant um, I would recommend using a good organic fertilizer. This crud they sell that says root stimulator on the bottle, uh, it's basically just a chemical fertilizer with a tiny bit of rooting hormone added. If you want to use something that is made specifically, look for a product called Biotone. That's by Espoma, and it is a very good root stimulator. I frequently just use the Medina Hastagrow as a root stimulator, but it, it doesn't have to say root stimulator on the bottle to be a very good product. But yes, I think it would be a good thing to do. And once again, uh, even these products, I would not just put them on the ground because remember, this this tree went through a big surgery, so to speak, and its root yeah. system is compromised. But go ahead and spray those products onto the trunk uh, and onto the limbs. Do that once a week or so. But like I say, if you could if you could moisten it uh, down as many times a day as you can pick up the hose and do that, that's what's going to give you the best chance of this tree coming out and making a good tree for you. You've taken on a big project. Moving a tree that big is tough to do, but uh, hopefully everything will work out well for you. But it's going to take some work on your part. Okay, well, great. I really do appreciate it. Thank you very much, sir. Well, it's my pleasure, and it's always good to hear from you. Call me anytime I can help. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Bye.